Lyft is a ride-sharing company with petabytes of data. Within Lyft, many different employees can use those data sets to build useful applications. A business analyst creates a dashboard to see how driver satisfaction is changing over time. An economist studies the pricing data to ensure that Lyft's prices are competitive. A data scientist creates a report of how the speed of a ride correlates with five-star ratings. A machine learning engineer trains a model to detect fraud on the platform. All of these use cases make sense, and in each of them, the employee at Lyft needs to find the necessary data sets within the company to build their application. Amundsen is a tool for finding and discovering data sets within the company. Tao Fang and Mark Grover are engineers at Lyft, and they join the show to talk about the problem of data discovery and the tools they have built and open-sourced at Lyft. A few updates from Software Engineering Daily Land. Podsheets is our open-source set of tools for managing podcasts and podcast businesses. A new version of Software Daily, our app and ad-free subscription service, has been created. And Software Daily is looking for help with Android engineering, QA, machine learning, and more. We definitely need help finding all the bugs in the mobile apps. Not to say the mobile apps are totally broken. They just have some bugs, and we'd really like to iron them out so we can create a better experience for the listenership. And the Find Collabs hackathon has ended, at least the first one. Winners will probably be announced by the time this episode airs, and we'll be announcing our next hackathon in a few weeks, so please stay tuned. The links for all these updates are in the show notes. Now let's get on with the episode. Tao Fang and Mark Grover, you guys are engineers at Lyft. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having us. We're super glad to be here. Thank you. I want to talk to you today about data discovery, and in order to get to the topic of what that term actually means, let's just talk about how data science works at Lyft. So as I understand, most of the data that data scientists are interfacing with at Lyft is not data that's created by the data scientists. It's created by production services, like a marketplace service that's setting the price on rides that people are taking or perhaps telemetry data for how people are traveling through space. And this data needs to be further processed in in data science jobs. Describe how data gets created at Lyft. The source of data at Lyft is one of three different things. The first one, as you were alluding to, Jeff, is from the apps or services that send events. So say you want to take a Lyft ride, you open up your app, and then you go through this quote-unquote funnel, right? You select your destination and you select your mode. Each of those clicks or actions is going to send an event which we track and then later can use for analysis to see how well that flow works. So that's type one. Type two is what we call CDC, change data capture. And so we are taking replicas from our online production systems and then bringing them into our warehouse in near real time. And type three is any external data or third-party data we may get from vendors that we upload side on the side to our data warehouse so folks can do analysis later on. So those are the three different sources of data. This data can be used for many purposes. It can be used to build machine learning models, to build dashboards. Describe some of the use cases for building things with these large data sets that are getting created at Lyft. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the first and foremost use cases, the first one they said was just dashboards. And they are used to make decisions, right? Decisions as big as areas where the company needs to invest more in to, you know, more day-to-day decisions around how much money to spend on acquisition or engagement, stuff like that. Uh, the second is also what you alluded to, which is around modeling, right? So the the price that you see in the app or the ETA that you see about when your driver will be available are based on machine learning models. And it's the same data that powers those models. Uh, the two use cases that are in addition to these two that are unique to Lyft the first one involves what an area of the organization we called operations, right? So these are folks in various different hubs that are responsible for the health of the marketplace. So they want to make sure that there are enough people driving at the right places at the right time for the rides that are going to be requested at, at that time, right? And so these people need tools in real time to control the health of the marketplace, maybe incentivize drivers to go to a certain place at a certain time and so on. That's the third use case. And the fourth use case are folks who are experimenting with the Lyft apps or the services in deploying new code. So it could be your traditional idea of experimentation around here's a red button, here's a blue button, which one works better. But at Lyft, we are also like doing all kinds of experimentation around here's a new version of the pricing algorithm and how would the marketplace dynamics behave with such an with such an algorithm? So this list is not exhaustive, but those are the top four that come to the mind. There's a variety of data roles at a tech company like Lyft. I've had conversations with people from Netflix and and Uber and other companies where they talk about the fact that you've got this explosion of roles that are related to data. You've got not only data scientist and data engineer, but you've got the data analysts, you've got the machine learning engineer, you might have business development people who who need some data and perhaps they know some SQL. Describe the different data roles at Lyft. Who needs to be able to find and access large data sets? Yeah, so their official titles um, may range anywhere from analyst to local analyst to a local analytics manager to a data scientist, to a research scientist, to a product manager or an exec. So I think perhaps one way to look at this problem is to list out all these titles. And most of them have a responsibility around using data that's curated and trustworthy to make decisions. That's perhaps the most common use case that's consistent across all those folks. And then the second large category of roles around research scientists is what we call them here at Lyft, as well as machine learning engineers, is around building and productionalizing prototypes, sorry, building, prototyping, productionalizing models that then power um, some very salient features of the app, like pricing and ETA. Explain what data discovery is. The idea of data discovery is that for folks, let's say you come in and you're a new analyst in the organization and you want to figure out how are we doing with cancellations, right? And if you are fairly new to the company, you don't have the tribal knowledge to even know where to start looking. Like what is the table that you need to run query on? Or maybe you don't even need to run query because somebody has already done this analysis. So data discovery is this problem of discovering the right trustworthy sources of data so you can gain reliable insights from it. Data discovery is important to all of these different people within an organization who might need to access data. If I'm building a dashboard, I need to find the data set that's going to power that dashboard. If I'm building a machine learning model, I need to find the data set 
as many data sets as would be useful to building a machine learning model. And and oftentimes, if I'm building some data-driven solution within a big organization like Lyft, I don't sit anywhere near the person who is uh, actually generating that data set. You may have uh, somebody in the Seattle office who writes the service that uh, calculates prices across the world, and then in in the San Francisco office, perhaps you have uh, somebody who wants to build a dashboard for how uh, prices have moved over time. So you have this, you know, this, and then the person may not may not be even be in the same sector of the company. So. So you have this this problem where people in different parts of the organization need to dis- be able to discover and access data sets that, that they don't even know exist or they don't know where they are. How has data discovery historically been solved at Lyft before you guys started working on, on the solution that we'll get to? Sure. So in history, it's like analysis or uh, data engineer may ask questions in, the, in Slack or places saying, could I use this table to solve, for example, getting the ETA information or getting the pricing information? And some of the domain experts which have the knowledge will answer these questions. Then we, we have seen a pattern is like this kind of question has been sometimes repeatedly asked. And also there's some fragmented uh, static wiki page may document some of these informations. So traditionally, this uh, data, dis- data discovery is a bit fragmented. I live before Amazon is born. How does that fragmentation create problems within the engineering process? Yeah, I think the biggest problem it leads to is a lack of productivity. That means that there's a lot of tribal knowledge in people's heads, and the amount of tribal knowledge you have is obviously proportional to the time you have spent at company. And for a company that's growing as fast as Lyft, that just doesn't work, right? And so the biggest problem is around productivity and also around democratization. So if we were to dive deep into what that word means, it's really like democratization is that there shouldn't be any classes between people, right? It's a it's a classless society. And without data discovery being solved, we noticed that there were a lot of classes being created. The very first and obvious one was around the people who have been around for a long time and the people who just joined. And these people may be equally smart, but the people who have been for a lesser amount of time aren't as resourced or enabled to be productive. And that was really the problem that this was causing. When did you start trying to build a technical solution around solving this data discovery problem within Lyft? Yeah, we were doing some interviews about a year, a year and a half ago, and hearing from our users that there wasn't a standard way to discover the, the data around them. And that led to us doing some prototypes. And they, they were started around June of last year, I would say. When you started attacking this problem, what were your initial thoughts on how you might solve it? For that, we actually ended up talking to a lot of our peer companies. We, we felt that this was a problem that existed in other places too. And we were lucky to have contacts at other companies. So a few companies that we talked to were Facebook, who had solved this problem using a tool called iData that's internal to Facebook. Airbnb had a tool called Data Portal, which they built. LinkedIn, where uh, Tao used to work actually before he came to Lyft, had a tool called Warehouse where they tried to solve. So one of the first things we did when we first got a hang of this problem was we, we, we wanted to go and talk to all these organizations. And that's kind of how we got started. 
I did a show a while ago with the individual who started Cursor.com, and I think that was based on LinkedIn's data discovery platform. Is that right? Uh, that's possible. We, we aren't familiar with Cursor. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not either. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, focusing back on, on Lyft and, and your data discovery solution, how is data stored within Lyft? So when we talk about, for example, a marketplace service that is storing a recollection of all the different prices that have changed over time uh, versus talking about something like how much did rides cost over uh, over a given period of time, are those data storage systems going to be consistent from service to service? That at Lyft, there are two types of data store. One is uh, for into the online data store, one for on the offline data store. For those, uh, for example, marketplace or location or ETA, they will send the real-time data into our online data store, mostly Dynamo or Mongo, MongoDB. And then once those raw data is stored, they will, some data engineer or have some pipeline will kind of popularly replicate this type of raw data into our offline data store, mainly Hive and Redshift. And then data engineer will build the right table on top of this raw data to get the derived table. And we also have a, another one like in-memory OLAP called Druid. So it's more for faster query analysis. Are the Druid data stores and those databases, those tables that the data engineers are building off of that offline data store, is the entire offline data store in HDFS, or what's what's the uh, the storage medium for the offline data store? Mostly S3. S3, okay. Does anybody get access to that offline data store? Is it totally accessible, or is there some kind of security policy around who can access what data set within the offline data store? We obviously have an obligation to safeguard the data that users send us. So the first and foremost thing we do is like stuff that's super sensitive doesn't even come to the online data store, right? So it obviously isn't online data stores, but it doesn't come to the offline data stores. And then from the data that's in the on offline data stores, there are various different policies that integrate with an in-house service that we call the ACL service. So this ACL service sits in between the BI tools or the dashboarding tools that are used to uh, surface most of the data to the larger company, as well as the databases that implement access control. So they are able to sort of lock down both the access control on the database level as well as the BI slash dashboarding tool level. ACL, does that mean access control logic? Uh, yeah, access control list. Yeah, exactly. Access control list. Okay, cool. So you do have mechanisms of controlling who can access what data set. When we talk about this offline data store, we've got a bunch of data there, and we can materialize different views on that big data lake so that we can perform analytics and queries on that data faster than if we were just accessing them in, in raw S3 buckets. But of course, again, we have to figure out what is actually in this huge data lake that makes up our offline data store. So if I'm a data scientist and I want to be able to easily find data sets that are relevant to whatever I'm studying or whatever machine learning model I'm building, what's the ideal experience for my process of data discovery? Yeah, that's a great question. We think that the ideal experience 
actually it's a few different kinds of experiences based on what you're looking at, right? So the first kind of ideal experience, one is that you have a certain keyword in your mind, right? Say I'm looking for cancellation rate or how the ETAs have been performing. And so you want to be able to search using uh, this keyword for relevant pieces, right? So that that's the first use case. The second use case is you just joined the company and you want to browse around what's available for data within your team. Maybe you want to look at like the tech lead of the team who, who you just joined so you can see like what they are using and learn from it. And so within these cases, let's dive deep into the first one, the, the search one, because I think that is the most common one. So the ideal use case for the search one would be you come in and you have a search engine-like interface, the way you search web in, in the data space, right? So you come in, you type something, let's say cancels. And once you type it, you get a list of results. Now, these results are of various different kinds. The first kind is tables. And you see them ranked in a similar order to how PageRank, for example, ranks your website results. So you see them rank based on their usage. And usage here means query volume. So tables that are queried higher show up higher in the query results. In addition to just seeing tables, you also see dashboards and notebooks and work that people have already done because the best kind of work that you can do is work that already someone else has done, right? So we, you would see that in a surface. And... From these results, you are able to then click on it, dive deep on it. Let's say you aren't able to find any relevant analysis, so you have to write your own SQL query. You click on the table, and then you're able to see in great detail what this table contains. So what that means is you have information about a description of the table along with all the columns and the types. But not only that, you have a description of each of the columns, and you have advanced stats on the columns. So like how... How many records does this column have? How many count distincts? If it's an int, like what's the min and the max? If it's a string, what is the average length? Like this kind of stuff can really help analysts, data scientists, research scientists really figure out what we call the shape of the data. And it helps them gain that trust. In addition to that, often you want to see like who owns this? When was this table last updated? When is the first date for which this table has data for? What is the lineage, which is where is this table coming from? Where is it going to? Who all is using this table, right? And lastly, you may want to see a small preview of the data to actually make sure like this kind of makes sense. And if this all makes sense, you may also like in an ideal world have a marker. Like if you go to kayak.com, it says like there's a 95% chance that the price will go up in the next seven days, right? Like why can't all our data resources have a marker which says there's a 95% trust in this data, right? So you have this page which really hones in on can you trust this data for the analysis you're about to embark upon? And if the answer you conclude is great, you click on this button at the very bottom that says go explore, right? And that takes you to an exploration tool where you just write your SQL queries and not. But that's really the, the ideal data discovery experience that we were thinking about. As you mentioned a little bit earlier, there are some tools for this data discovery process already. There are things you can take off the shelf to help you index and extract the metadata from the the data sets that exist across your organization. So these other tools for data discovery, because this problem is not, not necessarily new, in what ways were they insufficient? Why did you have to build something from scratch? Yeah, we did a thorough deep build, buy, and adopt analysis 
when we embarked upon this. Adopt, I, I want to talk a little more about Adopt is this new criteria, which is re, you can take an existing open source project and adopt it and make it better and use it, right? And so the few tools we looked at back then were vendors like Galatian, as well as open source tools like Apache Atlas, as well as learnings from existing tools that other companies build. So Airbnb's data portal and LinkedIn's warehouse were the biggest ones. It also helps to for us to share some of the criteria we used for evaluation, right? So the criteria that we used, by the way, all of this is also in a recent presentation that uh, we did. So you can find that on SlideShare and we can share the link later on too. But the criteria at a very high level was being able to support what we called search queries, which is very self-exploratory. The second one was lineage queries. And the third one was network queries, which are around you know, who's using this and what are the common users and so on. In addition to that, we needed some tactical support around Redshift tables as well as Hive tables. And we had a preference to it being open source. So based on that, and there's a whole metric, there was matrix, there, was, there wasn't really any tool that worked for us. What we really, if there would have been an open source tool that really did a fantastic job of this problem of data discovery, that would have been the ideal choice. But a year, year and a half ago, there was nothing that really fit the bill. Before we get into architecting the solution uh, of Amundsen, which is what you built for data discovery, let's let's make sure that we don't lose the lead here. So you wanted your data discovery tool, the one that you were going to build, you wanted it to solve a set of problems for the different people across your organization. What were the problems you wanted to solve with a data discovery platform? The problem we try to solve is mostly our mission for Amazon is mostly like democratize the data discovery and remove the tribal knowledge. We want people to make data discovery easy and easy to accessible to all the metadata for data. So Amazon evolved, start as a data discovery tool. So later on, we evolved as a metadata engine meaning that we are right now using internally for CCPA GDPR purposes. We also use as a meta engine for other like machine learning platform to ingest their metadata into Amundsen. So you become a metadata lake for the whole, all the data being lived. When you say metadata here, what are you referring to? Yes. When we say metadata, we actually refer to three different kinds of metadata. And it's a terminology we borrowed from a paper in the space called the ground project or the ground paper, uh, we refer to three different kinds of metadata. The first one, and we call this the ABC of metadata. A is application context. This is information that you and I and everyone needs in order to just do our job. This is what data exists, where is it, what does it mean, right? The second one is B for behavior, which is who's using it, what applications are built on it, and so on. The third is C for change. How is this data set evolving uh, and why did, was it evolved? Why did someone change the type of this column from string to int? So, so this is this is metadata about the databases and the data sets that are that are across Lyft. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah, that those ABCs are types of metadata, and then on the other side of this axis are the various sources or resources for which we have this information. So we can gather the ABCs of metadata for tables, but not just that, we can gather them for dashboards, right? You, you should be able to discover dashboards or reports that were made. 
Not only that, you should be able to discover streams or Kafka topics that, that were created or event schemas that are out there in your organization. As you're instrumenting a new event, you can look at existing events that exist. And the last one, which which we think is super critical as well, is people, human beings, right? Like we all are in some ways data assets. The fact that you use a certain table or bookmark a certain table or created a certain table is information that's relevant to people. So not, not only all these sort of abstract resources, we we should index people as well in this graph. And when you search for something like that information represented in a data graph is the most relevant to expose to our users. When we talk about all these different data sets within an organization, we've got data sets of all the different drivers uh, in, you know, let's, let's say like a data set of drivers and the you know, data set of drivers has uh, fields like maybe, I don't know, their age, you know, where they, where they are driving around in, how many hours they drive on average. And those details, those would be things that you would want to index as, as metadata because as when somebody is doing data discovery and they're looking for the right data set to base their like driver satisfaction dashboard on they need to be able to search all the data sets they don't necessarily need to be need to search all the data quite yet they just need to find that data set and so that's that's what you're trying to do here by uh, by by extracting the metadata from these different data sets yeah, yeah. And and we think that the holy grail of next generation of data applications is actually on metadata. And whether that's on, uh, like Tao was referring to earlier, like we started off with a data discovery application, and that's obviously the core of the conversation today. What we have realized is that the same metadata we can use to comply with regulations like GDPR and its younger sort of California brother, CCPA. And we are using Amundsen's backend metadata for for compliance purposes. And later on, like we see new applications emerge around downstream analysis. If you want to change like a certain field or a certain column, who all will be impacted? And that's all powered by the same metadata as well. And you also mentioned something pretty interesting, which is the metadata of who accesses different data sets. So if Stacy goes and builds a dashboard based on driver satisfaction, uh, you know, she's probably touched the the driver's uh, data set, and you may be in a totally different part of the organization, and you may want a driver satisfaction a dashboard as well. So, you know, there's, you know, if if you if you go and look at the driver satisfaction data set in an ideal world, there would be some trace that Stacy has accessed that that data set. Actually, I guess in the ideal world, her dashboard would be indexed. So you would be searching for, you know, driver satisfaction uh, data set and you might come up with, "Oh, oh, Stacy already built this dashboard that I'm actually trying to build, so I no longer need to to build this thing." So here you're 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 going towards like reducing duplicated work. That's correct. And I also I also like the idea of reducing duplicated work by like indexing the Kafka streams or the you know the other kinds of like computation that's that's munging this different data because from what I can tell most organizations have so much duplicated work. Do you have a sense for for how much duplicated work is going on in in the world of data science at Lyft? We're both laughing when you ask that question. We we don't have a sense. Uh, the closest we get to that is just the lack of productivity, and that was a qualitative survey we had done around how much time were data scientists and analysts spending on 
uh, various parts of their workflow. So their standard workflow in, involves first understanding the problem, um, mostly in English and conversations with other folks. But then it starts with discovery. Then you go and analyze and explore. And then you dashboard and share, right? And we, we noticed that a lot of scientists said during this workflow, they were spending about 33 or 35% somewhere in there, about a third of their time in data discovery before this tool. And so that, that gave us a lot of signal to try to solve that problem with a lot of uh, priority. So this brings us an interesting point on Amundsen. So, so Amundsen tried to service the most important metadata for users to use. For example, like what you mentioned, like Stacy is a driver analysis expert. He built a dashboard that a lot of people has been used. How do we make sure that this dashboard has been serviced as a first or second entry when people search? So we based at Lyft, we have a lot of query log, audit log about which dashboard, which data set has been used by how many people. We get this information and indexing Amundsen and make sure like the search ranking is actually falling to match this expectation. So basically when users try to search a table or dashboard, so the the one that surfaced on the top entry will be the one that has been used by most people. As we're talking about extracting metadata from data sets, if you've got perhaps S3 buckets in the offline data store, or you've got materialized views on top of that offline data set, you need to be able to to understand the database columns. Uh, you need to be able to understand uh, you know, what data is in a given data set. That's, that's to the metadata point. And so this brings up this interesting data engineering problem of Amundsen, because in order to allow for data discovery, you need to crawl the the metadata of each each data data storage system that's in this uh, this offline data store uh, or the materialized views of the offline data store, and you need to periodically be be indexing the the stuff that you're that you're grabbing, and this seems like kind of a challenge because you know. <laughs> Depending on what people like are storing their data in, it's like Cassandra, Elasticsearch, Postgres, uh, like Aurora. I, I don't know to what degree you have sprawl of different data storage types, but I imagine this is kind of an annoying challenge. That's correct. So when we're building this system, we have put a lot of thought on how do we get this metadata. So there are two way, uh, two approach. One is a pool, what we call a pool-based approach. One is called a push-based approach. Pool-based approach is like what you said, like building a crawler to, so basically it's a meaning whenever there's a change uh, in the source, we don't get it in real time, but we build a crawler to fetch this information in a fixed schedule and persist into our graph. Well, push-based approach is like whenever the source has a change, you also send a notification or event to a, to a stream of Kafka topics. Then downstream, there's a real-time system, a streaming system to persist this data into a graph in a near real time. So when we start building, think about this problem, at that time, Lyft doesn't have a very mature Kafka or messaging system set up. And, and we don't, it's half, and it's hard for us to design a, a generic data model as for a push model, because like you said, there are so many this different kind of data source with different form. So we start with a pool model, like building a crawler for, for some of the data source. So 
we try to make it extensible. So we we build a library, a data in uh, ingestion library called Data Builder, which is a uh, inspired by a project called a popular project called Apache Goblin, which is data integration framework. So it has uh, four phases in our frame, like extractor, transformers, loader, and publishers. So we generic this caller design into four phases to make it easy to extendable for different new data sources. The process of crawling all these different data sources, you used Apache Airflow for the uh, the workflow scheduling. Can you describe why Apache Airflow is useful? And I guess let's just talk about this engineering problem of extracting metadata from different data sources in order to build an index of the data sources across Lyft. Apache Airflow is a work, uh, very popular uh, workflow management project. It's good for known for dependency management and you handle like schedules, certain job in a fixed schedule reliably. So if you think of uh, calling the data source as a, from this point of view, is that we want to this kind of job to kick off in certain sequence. We want to say we get the metadata for all the table detail uh, first. Once that is done, then kick off the extended metadata. It could be, for example, the statistic for this uh, for this table. Who used uh, like who used this table? What is the high watermark or low watermark of this table? And then there's certain sequence. And once we build this each of this uh, as an airflow task in our deck, so so that airflow will kick off in certain sequence. The architecture of Amundsen is worth exploring in more detail now. now. Now that we've laid out the problem of data discovery, we've talked about the fact that really the core of the data that you need to be indexing in this system is the metadata of other data sources. And if people are confused about that, maybe just like rewind uh, 20 minutes and kind of like listen again, because uh, I think it pro- could probably be confusing to some people. But you know, if you get it, if you if you're following what's going on here, you realize that we need to figure out what kind of backing store are we going to use for all of this metadata that we're gathering from our different data sets. So how did you look at that problem when you've got these uh, these different data sets, you know, different tables, and, and you want to be able to, to index them? Uh, what, how did you choose your data storage system? Sure. So to answer this question, let's do a uh, brief recap of how the what a typical lift data workflow looks like. So like Mark has mentioned before, say the typical flow will be like an application could be a lift mobile client send certain location or ETA information to a to a Kinesis stream or Kafka topics. And then there's a we have a streaming ingest system. We'll get this information and persist into into a raw hype table. And then some analysis or data engineer will build some data set on top of this raw table into a derived table. And then later on, we found that certain user will use this table on a certain column. If you think of that, this actually is a graph to model this uh, the whole flow. It's like each of the component will be a vertex and connect them will be a edges. So, so this is very natural to model as a graph. There's a couple of other offering or database offering uh, in the industry. Like the first category will be a NoSQL database, like the DynamoDB or Cassandra's. Those are very good for performance, but they don't have a good support for join, which is critical to 
to model this uh, relationship. The other will be like the traditional RDBMS database like Oracle or Postgre or MySQL. They do have joint support, but their performance is not very good once you have uh, the number of nodes has been increasing to a certain, uh, certain scale. So in the end, we choose graph database and we use Neo4j as the one of the most popular offering in this domain as our backend data source. Mm-hmm. Okay, wait, so why a graph database? Talk about that in a little more, bit more detail. Why is a graph database the right choice? So we think like graph database could help us to easily model this uh, our data flow. So our, our data flow actually is like graph. So application connected with the events that because like this event is fired uh, or sent by this application. And then, like for example, column will be a mass extend metadata of this table. You, connect, you could connect it as an address, say mm. this table has column. Mm-hmm. And then the column is used by this user. So it also have a direction edges. Now, so, sorry, sorry if I, if I mis- misunderstood this, but how are you finding connections between these different data sources let's say one person in one part of the company makes the drivers uh like the driver satisfaction database right and the driver satisfaction database is like we've been sending these surveys to drivers and uh and and we've been recording their results that's how we accumulate the driver satisfaction database uh and then you know another part of the organization you have like driver statistics and it's like the drivers have been earning money uh over the course of, of a period of time it seems like these these two tables uh, well, I guess they're they're closely related enough. If you just have like driver as a column in each of those, you would want an edge between those two data set nodes uh, in your graph database. That's correct. So we when we start building Amundsen, our graph that uh, is always keep evolving. Yeah, it's, it's like we start. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect. We start as a subset of the graph mm. and we keep getting like domain knowledge or talk with different mm. users and get more insight on how the graph should evolve. And then we figure out actually there's certain metadata so we should index into our graph to make our graph more complete, more searchable, more useful for people to for data discovery. Mm. What a great insight. Yeah. And to pile on to what Tao just said, I think the few sources which we scrape is that we the extra node, the expansion of the graph that Tao was talking about, one expansion we did uh, in the second phase of the project was the link between a table and the Airflow DAG that created that table. Another expansion we did was around lineage, which is like we look at a query and are able to decide that table B was constructed from table A, and hence there should be a link between those two. And now we also have a, a link between a human and a table. So if you ran a query, there is a link of used by um, between those two entities as well. The other component uh, of of Amundsen that we haven't really talked about is uh, is Elasticsearch. So basically, if I'm a user, I'm looking for the right data sources to to build a dashboard or to do some data science stuff. Uh, I'm going to enter in a search query. I'm searching for a driver's data set, and that's going to hit Elasticsearch. Tell me about what you had to do to to get Elastic your Elasticsearch index built properly. So we mostly rely on certain audit log. So for example, in our case, we're using the Presto audit log to figure out which table or which column has been used or total use or you unique the press, use. The Presto audit log? 
Yes. So okay. So uh, to get a sense about get a sense about which table mm. in this case has been used by uh, more people, and then we we build a certain format to index this information into our Elasticsearch. So certain, for example, a certain word or certain column has certain ranking based on the usage. Then when we surface this uh, information, we use this ranking. That's so creative. Do other the, these other data discovery platforms that are already in existence? Do they take into account this kind of stuff, like like, basically like the popularity in terms of like who's accessing the data a lot? I think some of them did, though that was not like a super important criteria for us. We learned this power of this from actually a tool that already existed. Airbnb's data portal did this, and. We, we thought it was like a phenomenal idea and we just copied it. So, and I assume there must be like kind of a power law distribution among like what are the best data sets and it would almost be, be cool to like, you know, you log into the, to the platform and just like, what are the most popular data sets within the organization? That's probably a, a great use case. Yeah, in fact, the first page uh, of Amundsen has a search box as we described earlier, but it actually also has popular tables page underneath it so if you don't know what you want to search for and just like it's your first time just browsing data like well you start with those top five tables and those are that's a dynamically populated list based on what's popular in the company so if i if i understand the architecture correctly if i go to if i start using amundsen and i do a search for like i'm looking for drive for data sets that involve drivers of for lyft i search drivers that Elasticsearch query, it, it hits Elasticsearch with the Elasticsearch index, and that index has been built based off of the data in the, not necessarily in the graph database, or it's, it's like in the graph, it com- combines the graph database and the Presto audit log? So the search index is built in our offline offline crawler, basically our data builder. So we build an Afro deck, like we generate a lot of the metadata into our Neo4j. Then the one of the last tasks will be fetching this information from metadata graph. At that time, we already have the usage information and then build the index in an offline fashion into our Elasticsearch. Mm, okay, I think I see. So, so basically, you have this data builder, ET, well, not ETL job, d- data engineering job, this series of airflow jobs. The data builder is scanning all the data sets in the offline data store. It's extracting the metadata from them. It's collecting the metadata into the graph database. Uh, you build the graph database, and then you take the Presto audit log separately. And again, Presto is something we've done a show on. Uh, we've done a couple shows on. It's like a, a way to to query large data sets. If I don't know if that's that's poor poor condensed version of it, but it, it, you can use the audit log to sort of see. Uh, who is accessing what data set and how popular certain data sets are. And so you use the data from the audit log together with the data in the graph database that you just built to build the search index that users actually will be using to to find, to solve their data discovery problem. Yeah, so that's correct. So currently the index is built in offline, but we are moving towards is also uh, have a real time. So meaning like when user is... Uh, doing some searching, it will also affect our uh, Elasticsearch index, but that is still in our roadmap. Yeah. Cool. So just, to, just to drive this point home, take me through the life of a query. Like when I am on the back end, 
or what is happening on the back end when I'm grabbing a data set from the front end? When user type a query, type a query term like could be a driver. So the, the first of all, let me recap a, a, a bit on Amundsen's uh, architecture, if uh, we didn't discuss. So Amundsen is a, have a three microservices. It has a front end services, it has search service, it has a metadata service. The metadata service is powered the metadata request from the front end. The search service is powered the search this uh, request from the front end. So in this case, uh, the, when user type, for example, driver query term from in the front end, the front end will use this and send it to the search service. The search service use this query term and search all the existing most re- uh, index and see getting a result leveraging the Elasticsearch functionality based on the ranking and then construct a list of results based on the priority and return to the return to the front end. It's, it's a pagination result. So user will select which one they he, is, he or she is most interesting on and then click the result. Once it click, you will end you will di- the tool will direct him or her into a table detail page. For example, could be a driver about certain use case. And then inside the Table detail page, they have, it has all the centralized metadata. It has, for example, like table name, the high watermark, low watermark of this table. Who, who is the owner of the, who are the owners of this table? What are the frequent user of this table? Like which effort that has generated? And which GitHub source file is associated with this table? What's the job lin, uh, what's the table lineage for this table? And even connected or integrate with Apache Superset, which is a BI or popular BI visualization tool used in Lyft to do data preview or data exploration. And it also show, allow you to edit the metadata. For example, like we encourage the domain expert to say, how to type, for example, this column is known for this kind of purposes, that column maybe is deprecated and shouldn't use this kind of power tribal knowledge. I guess I'd like to revisit this question of the difference between Amundsen and the other data discovery tools that are out there. I guess Airbnbs was not open source. Maybe that's that's you know a reason why you didn't use it. But there are these other industrial enterprise solutions. And I know Amundsen either has been open sourced or it's going to be open sourced. So so people can kind of evaluate. Now they have their own build, buy, adopt uh, decision to make. You know, do they buy one of these enterprise solutions or do they, uh, do they adopt the open source Amundsen platform? How would you contra- how would you uh, you know advise people who are looking for a data discovery platform that may perhaps considering Amundsen? How would you contrast Amundsen with the other industry leaders? Yeah, so I think it's a question worthy of talking more about. So a few things that helped us make our decision, and then we can jump into a few things that help, can help people make their decision. For us, it was very important to have two things. One was Redshift support, and the other one was to have superset support and mode support. So why is that? Because some of our data at that time was in Redshift, and we wanted to be able to index that. And then superset and mode are two heavily used BI tool, Superset is a self-supported here at Lyft, while Mode is a vendor. When we were looking for tools, we were we wanted to see how well they integrate with the ecosystem we had at Lyft. And that was a fairly clear answer for us in terms of which tools we could pick. So the commercial offerings weren't integrating well. I think we have also a strong bias to 
controlling our destiny through open source. And the, the most prominent open source tool at that time was Apache Atlas. And that left a lot to be desired in terms of that experience of search, as well as the detail that you get on a table page. And so we felt that the experience of Atlas was was a huge gap to what we wanted it to be. And that's how we ended up making this decision. For people making the choice now, I think if you are in a place to control uh, and adopt an open source tool, Amundsen would be a really good fit. I think it comes with a really uh, good graph database at the end and the and the, the search ranking that we are doing and the frequent users and other information that we get from the combination of audit logs as well as metadata is unique. That makes Amundsen a strong contender. We are in the process of announcing open source fairly soon as well. To add some detail on what Mark said, so Amundsen is designed as open source from the day one. So when we're building, for example, like metadata service and uh, search service, we think of how to make it easy, extendable for other other company or cut other user to adopt. So when we build it, we, we just make it as a sync proxy layer in metadata service and search services so that you could actually plug in your own, you could you could choose your end backend engine. You don't necessarily need to be Neo4j. You could build, for example, using other graph database or even like relation database or some other offering. As long as you, uh, we build an abstract API proxy. So you just need to build your own proxy and implement the API. And then our, our front end could immediately work in this case. Okay, well, as we begin to wrap up, I'd love to get broader perspective from both of you on data engineering across the industry. You were both at Strata, I was at Strata, uh, and it was a it was a nice time to, I guess, pause and reflect on just the the state of the industry. What are the newer aspects of data engineering that you're excited about? Yeah, a few things that we. Uh, that I noticed at Strata that was super exciting and cool were in two areas. One was around data science productivity, and the other one was around data engineering productivity. So around data engineering productivity, the things that were super exciting were doing anomaly detection as the ETL is running so that the likelihood of you generating bad data from which bad decisions get made is reduced. So instead of putting the data out there and not having enough trust, can you short circuit the ETL pipeline so that data doesn't even go there? And around data science productivity, it was mostly, I guess, biased opinion around data discovery and sort of building a new wave of data discovery applications on top of metadata and then starting to build newer compliance style applications on top of the same metadata, which is a trend we are also seeing at Lyft as well. To add that is like we, I see Definitely, there's a trend in the industry to build a better metadata engine for for better data discovery. I listened to a talk like and for Netflix about how to build. They they share their um, approach or share their knowledge how to build a good metadata engine for job, uh, for data lineage as well as the metadata uh, use. They also uh, they also talk about using graph database as their backend engine. Fascinating, the rise of the graph database. Tao and Mark, I want to thank you both for coming on the show. It's been really interesting talking to you, and I'm looking forward to seeing the developments in Amundsen. Well, thank you very much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Wow.